getting into questions on the place of mystical experience in the spiritual life. And so I had mentioned, right, this desire present in the early church, especially to distinguish themselves from the kind of the various mystery religions that were present at the time. And sometimes you see people kind of confusedly maybe looking at some of the terminology that Paul uses in certain certain letters, like letter to the Ephesians, for instance, and they, you know, will attempt to associate the two things a little bit. But the early church is, is very clear that there's nothing about the Christian experience that is like what the pagans are experiencing. It's part of why often in the early apologists, I think we went over a bit of this last term in the, the apologetics course, the where you see in the early, early church, right, in the apostolic fathers, and in writers like Justin, uh, that, that kind of thing, the early apologists don't want to rely too much on the various miracle stories to ground Christian experience because they want to kind of get away from anything that would seem magical or, you know, too too mystical in, in that sense of the word. But the language does come back in with Dionysius, as we mentioned last week. And you see you you see kind of the the, the flowering of this in the sort of like post-counter-reformation era, uh, especially in France and Spain, right? You have the, the, the Carmelite tradition especially. So that's, I think, I think that's where we ended last week. Now, it is true, right, that this it's not something that can be, you know, the church is pretty clear. It's not something that can be gained or grasped for one's self, right? It's it's a work of the Holy Spirit, right? Any, so any mystical experience is always going to be something given. It's going to be something passively received. So in the language of Dionysius, it's a kind of suffering of divine things, right? That passio, that, that passivity is going to be, need to be present. So it's an actuation of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. The various other sensory phenomena that we might associate with mysticism or the mystical life I think of, you know, visions, locutions, things like that, uh, are always going to need to be secondary and may or may not accompany this interior movement and actuation, right? For the majority of people, right, they're not going to accompany advancement in the spiritual life. And so that's sometimes where you get the, the tension between writers who think, well, the mystical life is sort of the natural flowering simply of baptism and you know, and grace versus those who would think, no, it's a more sort of more, you know, individualistic, purely based on secondary graces, right? Usually they will associate those with the sensory phenomena. Now, I think we mentioned a few weeks ago, the difference in language in how we talk about the spiritual life. So we talked about, right, the spiritual life, spiritual theology, ascetical theology, or mystical theology. The, the possible difference in distinguishing mysticism from asceticism is that you can live a purely human asceticism, right? If anything, the 21st century is kind of is really in, in favor of that in a lot of ways. Think of, you know, dieting culture, you know, uh, you know, health, that kind of thing. You can live a kind of asceticism simply according to your human mode. Right? It can be lived without the assurity of the assistance of grace or divine aid. But the mystical life always will come with an assurance of God's movement and activity. So it's a kind of it's it is a transcendent passive experience. It's completely outside of our control. It's outside of any of our own intervention. 
not that it goes contrary or opposes our own activity, right? That, that which is ours, but it's comes from beyond and outside of ourselves. So if we take the ascetic life as leading to the mystical life, which for instance, um, right. Father, Father Lagrange will do a little bit later. We can look at how faith and love as supernaturally infused virtues still operate according to their human mode. Right. So even though faith and love are supernaturally infused virtues, they operate according to our human mode. Right. So we can we can use them according to our own powers. The gifts of the Holy Spirit, however, are supernatural both in essence as faith and charity, for, for, for instance, uh, and in their operation, which distinguishes them from the virtues. So one of the things that distinguishes the gifts from the virtues is that the gifts also operate in a supernatural mode as well. And so, for instance, when, when Thomas is talking in the Summa about the need or the necessity of the gifts for salvation, this is part of the reason that he talks about, uh, about this. So when we shift from the human operation of the infused virtues, we can then see how advancement in the spiritual life would end up with, hopefully, complete submission to the presence of the gifts. So it would be a more perfect kind of obedience and submission to the work of God in the soul, where we're moving from a human mode of operating, even the infused virtues, to being almost purely passive, right, and obedient to the movement of the Holy Spirit, right? So the infusion of the gifts are what allows us to accomplish that. Now, in advancing in the spiritual life, there tends to be generally an imperceptible shift, right? Not many of us are going to have our own kind of St. Paul moments where we're just simply knocked to the ground and there's a kind of radical change or movement in the soul. It's usually noticeable um, after things kind of become obvious, not as our sort of gradual attainment of the virtues, uh, and less so in earlier stages, at least according to most of the great spiritual writers, like John of the Cross, for instance, will talk about how sort of early advancement, it's difficult to discern a lot of things. And so it's why you would need a, a particularly wise director right, in at the beginning of the spiritual life or as a novice, right, where hopefully as you mature and advance, uh, it would be something that would be, you know, the various obstacles that you would face would be a little bit more noticeable. So in the early stages of what we would call kind of this, this passive purification of the soul, this would seem to make a lot of sense, right? God is attempting to remove obstacles from the spiritual life, remove attachments, and the soul can be deprived of the sensory experience of God's presence at times. So trying to sort of draw this question to to a conclusion or a close, right? We can ask, well, whether mystical experience is expected to be something normal. Now, it would seem that mystical experience of the divine would, at least in one sense, not be a special grace itself, right? That it would be the normal outworking and operation of the gifts of the Holy Spirit in the soul. Now, it does seem like in the tradition it takes time to do. So if, if we want to follow Father Lagrange, for instance, who's most clear about this most recently in the 20th century, and this is the position he takes up. Um, so if we take this position, right, we would say, that well, it clearly takes time for the Christian tradition to kind of develop and see this with a lot of clarity, right? Because you will see other spiritual writers talk about how right, mystical union with God is something granted only to a few for instance, right? Maybe you would expect 
I don't know, Augustine to say something similar. But unless we want to concede that union with God is only granted to very few, this would seem to need to be the case. And how it actually works itself out in each individual's life is going to be different, of course. But if we want to talk about the full flowering of the life of grace, it seems to be the direction that we need to go. If all are called to Christian perfection, then nobody is going to be called to something that's impossible to achieve. Right? This would be something particularly crucial, uh, that if we actually believe the commandments are fulfillable by grace, if union with God is actually something to which we are called, if perfection is possible, then this is the path it seems we need to take. Now, there are going to be differences in the degree of grace granted to each, of course. This is, you know, Therese's famous you know, the example of the different size cups, right? We're all called to fill the cup, right? Our cups might be different sizes, though, of course. So when we look at, you know, mystical activity in infused contemplation, for instance, we, say, we, can, we can ask, well, are, are these two the same? Are they, are they concomitant, right? Some, consider, right? some writers consider these to be concomitant elements of the same activity, so any mystical experience is going to be purely infused contemplation. So it's going to be purely something that sort of happens like one of the gratuitous graces. But upon further reflection, it seems to me that they are actually separate. After all, the dark night and passive purgation occur with no experience of God of whatever. Right? That's part of the definition right, of the dark, right? The dark night of the soul or the dark night of the senses, right? That's the fact that there's no sort of active experiential knowledge of God. That's part of the reason it can be so difficult. And yet at the same time, we would want to say that these are themselves sort of acts of God in the soul, right? Leading us somewhere, not that it's just pure divine abandonment. So if we make this distinction between active and contemplative operations in the soul, we can see that some of the gifts like fortitude, for instance, would be ordered to the active life, right? They might not be compatible with infused contemplation. So infused contemplation is not going to simply be the whole of what we should expect as far as the, the movement of divine grace in the soul and even mystical union with God, right? So the, the gift of fortitude wouldn't seem to be particularly necessary maybe for a, you know, a cloistered Carmelite, right? The way that it might be for someone living a mendicant life who's actually interacting with the world and sort of natural hostile forces. Nevertheless, sanctifying grace demands a growth in sanctity and increase in the rootedness of charity. For if grace were infused, perfectly formed and developed, the demand to strive for perfection would seem to be meaningless. Right? So there is a kind of perfection in its gift in what it is. Right? It's not that God gives something defective, but at the same time, right, this demand for perfection and to strive for perfection right, to work out your salvation in fear and trembling would seem to be meaningless if grace is infused perfectly developed of course i imagine some some right some of the saints i imagine have been given this kind of perfection right but that itself would be not not not, not typical so if we look a little bit deeper on the mystical on mystical experience versus existence in a kind of mystical state, there's almost a kind of distinction between right, various graces that would be habits and various graces that would be given gratuitously that are not habits. So think of um, think of the grace of prophecy, for instance, right? Prophecy is not a habit. It's not something given to the soul that you can then sort of you choose to use and operate whenever you will, right? Thomas talks about 
the grace of prophecy, um, he, he uses the example, I think, of a stained glass window, right? When light, when light passes through the window, then the picture is illuminated, right? But it's not the picture that re- sort of retains illumination on its own, right? It's purely the light that passes through the window that illuminates that picture. And as soon as the light's gone, the picture's gone. So he talks about how that's in the grace of prophecy, for instance, that's how that kind of thing works, right? It requires grace in the moment, right? And not not sort of the prophet's, the prophet's own choice. In fact, the scripture seems to be pretty clear that often it happens sort of almost completely against the prophet's will, like this just happened. Or I was just, you know, think of Ezekiel, right? I was just sitting by the river and then all of a sudden, you know, I'm sort of taken up into this into this state. So the, a mystical act right, or an experience, an individual experience does seem to be a passing experience. It's always going to be passive. Now, this would be different than what we might see as or might call a mystical state, right, which would be more like a habit or a fixed state of existing. So um, we might refer to a mystical state or the mystical age right of the perfect um if we look at the sort of the third column of the chart right that the mystical life when the christian soul so gives itself over to god so as to experience this passive operation and actuation of the gifts um very frequently right and so frequently that it would begin to kind of predominate over the purely human mode of operation typical of the majority of us right so it does seem right reading the lives of the saints things like this that they the best, right, the most perfect sort of enter this kind of mystical life that seems to exist day to day, right, as their general state of existence, right? We would want to distinguish that from be from more individual, particular mystical experiences that may be on the way, right, as proficients right, might be given sort of in particular moments. Now, even this particular, even this sort of, even this height of Right, even the height of this mystical life wouldn't yet be a complete and dominating kind of violent takeover by the spirit. Right, the individual doesn't become a kind of divine puppet that just is sort of danced through life um, without any free will, without any human activity. Right, it's not something permanent or uninterrupted, as though it's just a 24/7 mode of existence. Right, the saints usually. I right, still need to eat and sleep and that kind of thing. Of course, there's, you know, certain examples of extreme activity as far as that goes as well. But the activity of the mystical life would be frequent enough in its most perfect examples to distinguish it from more solitary or infrequent instances. So if we, you know, as you're, you know, doing your own reading, for instance, if there's a distinction between mystical experiences versus a kind of mystical state or life, that's the distinction we're talking about. So it's not a movement. If we look at the, the chart, which we'll get to in a little bit, right, I think I've emphasized this a number of times. Right, When we're talking about the movement from beginning to advanced to perfect, right, it's not a movement from one stage to another without any overlap or returning to different stages. Right, It's not as though, well, you've completed one level and now you're up. right? And if you ever sort of fail, then you just hit back right, to the beginning of that particular save point, right? This is once you've advanced to the proficient, well, you never have to deal with any issues of, of the beginners. It's not exactly that. Um, mystical and ascetic activity, right, when we usually, if we, if we compare them side by side, we'd say we usually move from the ascetic to the mystic, 
right? It's not as though they're in competition, right? The mystical life seems to flower out of the ascetic life. So Christian perfection would consist in the flowering of sanctifying grace, but this requires the operation of the gifts since they can't go beyond the purely human activation without them. 